Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Ari Bloom. He's the co founder and CEO of A Frame Brands, the brains behind some really well known celebrity backed brands. They include celebrities like Dwayne Wade, John Legend, Naomi Osaka. I want to talk with Ari just about the thesis behind A Frame. It's a really interesting company. The, the focus is on these, these diverse founded brands, specifically from celebrities. I'm also really interested just in the general movement of brands founded by people with big followings. It's a it's a really big thing that a lot of people have been talking about of late. And I think Ari probably has some really interesting insight into this. And we're going to talk about a lot more. But Ari, how are you doing? Thanks for joining. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's very nice to be here. Yeah, it's great for you to be here, too. I'm excited to chat. Uh, first, tell me about yourself. Uh, what were you doing before A-Frame started? How did you get into this space? Yeah, I came up actually in retail merchandising. So um, I'm the son of a physician and a musician. Um, and I think that's a good way to kind of start the story um, of how I ended up in my original half of my career, we'll call it the first half of my career, and how it ended up here, which really is a confluence of many years of work and experiences personally and professionally to get here. Um, but um, I definitely am a person who is stuck between the right brain and the left brain there's a lot of creativity in me, but there's a lot of analytical um, rigor in my in my thinking as well. And so um, I came out of uh, university, actually, I was studying to be a hospital administrator, if that gives you any sense of uh, wow. <laughs> where things took a turn. Um, I, but the, the, I think the thesis of why I was trying to do that work is very much evident in what I do today, which is I really wanted to, I believe very strongly that business and commerce has an opportunity to make positive change. And I think my, my intention as a you know, 17 or 18 year old to run a hospital was, I'm a business person. I think I know that about myself now. And I want to do something positive where I'm helping people on a day to day basis. Uh, my dad was a family doc. He, you know, he had patients, he had my friends, he delivered, you know, when they were babies, he saw them all through their lives. He saw their parents, their grandparents. Now he's seeing their kids. And I think that 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 really had an impact on me. But I didn't feel like I could, that was my path. I wasn't going to be a physician or a dentist. <laughs> but I, I, I think that really what I wanted to do was do, do good things for people and do good things for society. And I think I ended up actually realizing that being a hospital administrator was not a job that people really um, looked kindly on. Or, or were you somebody who helped people on a day-to-day basis? You actually did the opposite in some cases, and the doctor sure as hell didn't like you. So I, uh, I, I switched paths after spending a summer shadowing a CEO. It was a wonderful guy who took really good care of me, but it was very clear to me that this was not what I wanted to do. And I went into retail merchandising, uh, kind of luckily. Uh, I, I graduated college in the late 90s, and uh, Gap was at its, I would say, its peak and was aggressively recruiting college grads to come into a training program. And I think if you look at the, I, I think a lot of industries have some great companies who do these training programs for kids straight out of school and happens in finance, it happens in consulting and retail. I think there's a really rich history of Macy's and Bloomingdale's and all of these different programs. At that time, late 90s, early 2000s, Gap was really the, the best program in the industry. And I was lucky because I got in. Um, it was thousands of applicants. Um, I actually, it's a good story. I had to hack into hack. There were no <laughs> passwords on on the career centers at Harvard and Yale and Stanford. I was not at any of those schools. And I started snooping around their career centers to see what was interesting because I didn't have anything interesting on my career <laughs> center. And so I ended up applying because I found it on the other websites and they just had not realized you had to password protect those things at this point because it was early days of the internet. 
And so I applied and I, and I made it through the process and I, and I got the job and it was great. Uh, retail merchandising was a really good fit for me. It was very analytical, very creative. Um, and I think starting at the gap in the late nineties, it was not only from a consumer perspective, was it a great company? It was as a company professionally, it was an amazing place to work. Uh, Mickey Drexler was the CEO at the time. It was a very progressive company. The Fisher family had done a really good job of being very like intentional about making sure that they had a diverse team. They offered things like same-sex benefits, you know, at that point, which was way ahead of its time. And uh, we had diversity training uh, when we were straight out of, you know, right out of college in the late 90s. And that was something we just still to this day. You don't hear about that um, in the late it, 90s at all. That's right. So it was something that I think was was very influential for me. And I spent seven years there. And I really, it was kind of like the Garden of Eden for me. I never really found any way back to that. Um, I got an MBA about eight years into my career. Um, and a great experience. I got into Harvard. I got in one. I applied to one school and I got in, which was Harvard. I was very lucky that that worked out. Um, my life is kind of a, a series of fortunate events, I feel like. And I, you know, took that MBA. I took that experience. I ate every single second of that. I was, you know, in my 30s. I think I was one of the older people in the class. And I knew that I was lucky to be there. And I took advantage of everything that I had. Um, and I started consulting after that myself. I was doing that in school. A lot of small retail companies who knew me from my days in retail were calling saying, hey, can you help me with the business plan? Hey, I need to raise capital. The economy had just blown up. And I graduated in 2009 when everybody was looking for money. Everybody was looking for help and nobody could afford anything. And I could come in and do a lot of great work and work at five or 10 different companies at once. And I made a, I made a job out of that. I made a company out of that. And I did that for six years. Moved out to the West Coast when we had kids, actually. I kind of had a little bit of a a uh, freak out moment when I became a father. So I got to get a job. I, I can't do this. And uh, so I went into tech. And really, the reason was, it was very intentional, is that tech for me was impacting everything I was doing and everything I was seeing in every business I was touching. And that was across retail, hospitality, media, um, you know, beauty, every everything I was a part of. Um, I was one of the early, I actually worked on Refinery29 very, very, very early days when it was five people in a basement in Tribeca. Um, and that was a company that I felt like was a really good indication of where things were headed. And I started with them like right out of business school. And so I moved out to the Bay Area. I was in tech. I was a CMO um, at a, a startup. And then uh, I got recruited to be a CEO uh, for a Coastal Ventures backed retail software company. Um, and it was great. I had a great experience there. Very stressful being a CEO. Um, but I raised capital, sold the company, went through the whole process. And really, at that point in my life, I'd done so many things, I think, that had come to me. Um, and I really said, listen, where do I want to live and what do I want to do? I had two kids. I was in my 40s. And I said, I want to build a company going back to my roots of something that's going to be positive for people. It's going to make an impact for them. I was heavily influenced by my experience early days at Gap. How do I do it in a way that's going to be socially responsible, both inside and outside? And, you know, my co-founder, Hill Harper, and I are dear friends. Uh, we were fathers of young kids, and we were talking a lot about our experience as parents and what the disconnect was between the communities we lived in and operated in and, and thrived in and how diverse and rich and wonderful those communities were, but that we didn't really see that in our corporate life, that the boardrooms and the investors, it just didn't match and so aside from knowing that as parents, there were opportunities to create products and brands for more diverse families, which is where we started, we also knew that our company had to reflect the communities we wanted to serve. And that was, a, that was something for us was like, if two people on earth have the ability to do this, it's us. So what are we waiting for? If not us, who? And if not now, when? And that was really why we started A-Frame together. We knew that we had the access to capital, retail, 
press, people. We could get everything that we needed. And we had the intentionality and we had the ability to do it. When you put those two things together, you can actually make things happen. So we started A-Frame as a company that was dedicated to launching brands that specifically identified opportunities because of demographics in this country. And we feel like as long as the market continues to zig in the direction of creating everything for general audience, everything's the same for everybody, there's an opportunity to zag and do things for what is actually either the majority or soon to be majority of customers that are left behind simply because they're not quote unquote general audience. So that that is how I got to today. Got it. Wow. And it does seem like, you know, you you started you started in healthcare, you went to retail, then you went to consulting, and then you went to tech. You've sort of done it all. And it seems like A-Frame is kind of a confluence of that all where, you know, it is predominantly retail, I imagine, but also you're doing a lot of other underlying things because you're not the brand itself, right? Yeah, we. I, I'd say it, one of my investors said you finally figured out how to institutionalize Ari, which I think <laughs> is is probably probably an accurate statement. It is definitely a a, a collection of all of the and, and Hill. You know, the two of us kind of have some specific advantages and things that we're good at, and I think we just put it into a company, which was great. So first, when did A Frame officially launch, and what was the first company that you launched? And what, did you launch with a company in mind, or did that come after? Yeah, we started with the first brand and we started putting together, I left, let's see, so I sold uh, Avametric, which was my last company. It was a um, 3D and AR company for retail software. We did virtual design and virtual e-commerce um, plugins. I sold that at the end of 2018 to Gerber um, Technology. And I went to Gerber for a couple of months. Um, actually, it was great. I mean, I'm going to give Gerber a shout out because they were great, great people that we worked with. But a, a good example of like an entrenched retail company that, you know, makes CAD software for everybody, you know, like they've been around for, I think, 75 years at that point. And when they bought Avametric, it was like it was, a you know, 30 people in San Francisco, all engineers, except for me and Avanta, who is now at A-Frame with me. And we, you know, it was just culturally a very different kind of company. And we I sat down with with their CEO shortly after the acquisition. And I feel like it's funny, he like had a glass of wine, you know, he's going to tell me like, it's not going to be a good fit. And I'm like, hey, by the way, I just want to let you know, I don't think it's going to be a good fit long term. And he's like, great. <laughs> I love that. That's what we think, too. We love you. But like, can you be on our board and stay connected? And it was just such a nice uh, situation. And I think it enabled me to take the time to say, like, here's what I'm going to do next. It's not going to be competitive to what we're doing with you. But let's take all the things that we've learned. And if you guys can be supportive, that's great. And they eventually sold to Electra, and that company's doing great. So um, I'm not sure. I actually forgot what your question was, but hopefully that answered it. <laughs> oh, no. The question was, uh, what was the first brand you had in mind, and how did that? Ah, okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So after we sold the company, and I, I, I was going to move into a board seat with Gerber, which uh, was a great fit for me and a great fit for them, I, I wanted to take some time to really think about what I was going to do next. And this was the time that I was really talking to Hill Harper about how we were going to start something. But I think the thing that was so personal to us was family-related products and family experience. And so we really did start with the baby brand, um, and that became what is now Proudly, which is Nationwide and Target with Gab, uh, Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade. It was a brand that I think was an obvious one to us because you can we call these, we call these ideas head-scratchingly obvious. How is it that you can Google search and find out that over half the kids in this country have a black, brown, or Asian parent since 2014 and not see more brands and market dedicated to what is the majority of kids. That's insane. 
So we were we started with that brand knowing that there would be other opportunities, but it was kind of shocking to us even after that how many other opportunities came to us immediately. So we had three brands in market within, you know, basically the same year. So idea phase was 2019, 2020, we started putting partnerships together. And then into 21, we started to actually launch the brands. Um, and 22 was the launch year for kind of everything. And now we're in market with three brands. So we've done a lot in a short period of time. I was the only employee up until about uh, halfway through 2021. And then we all of a sudden went to kind of 30 employees by 2022. So it's been a rapid um, kind of spike and, and ramp up, uh, which is typical of a lot of startups. And I think now we're into into the into year, we'll call it phase two instead of year two, but phase two where you're actually operating and refining. And it's a very different time in a business, which you know, it, I like it, but it's just not, it's not the same thing as when you're ideating and concepting and launching. That's a very sexy, exciting time. Yeah. That's, um, you can do that with a glass of wine and, you know, think, you know, right on a board, but this time you probably is a, is a balance sheet, which is a lot, a lot less sexy. Um, That's right. It's the whiteboard (laughs) years versus the balance sheet years. Yes. Were celebrities always part of the calculus or having these, you know, really well-known names doing it? And was that part since the beginning when you and your co-founder were talking about it? Or was that something you came to as just a really necessary fit to, to get, hit the ground running? Yeah. I, I don't think it was part of the original calculus. I think we just felt like there were brands that needed to be in market. Hill happens to be from Hollywood. And when we brought in our third board member, um, which was John Howard. Um, John is a good friend of mine and a mentor and somebody who I really love dearly and has been so good to me. And he, at that time, uh, was in the thick of, I think they were selling Aviation Gin around that time, and they were launching skims. They were working on skims. And he was just very influential. He was like, this is my model. This is what I do. He explained the whole thing. He, you know, as usual, he's just very generous um, and explained kind of how he had approached it. And this was, you know, this was 2019. So we were... Um, you know, at that point, we didn't know we were about to go into a pandemic when everybody would be sitting at home on their computers. And I think once that happened, it was very clear to us that that was going to be something that was going to help us cut through. And more importantly, what I think people overlook is that it wasn't about Instagram. It wasn't about digital. Like, that's a nice channel that can help you. But like the the two things that I think, actually three things where having somebody notable is important are are not that. Um, and first, I want to also sidebar to say that we spent a lot of time once we decided to do that, we spent a lot of time doing research. We actually hired third party research firms to help us determine who was the best fit once we had a great concept. We wanted to first make sure we had a market need. There was a problem that needed to be solved, that we had retail partners and interested. So we were talking to Target and Walmart early days about all of these um, concepts, but the baby brand in specific. We, I was telling somebody the other day, like, Martin Nakachuku, who is the chief strategy officer, we sat through some early meetings with Walmart and Target where we were pitching essentially a piece of paper and they were like, this is amazing. How do we get involved? And that's great. Like that's, you want that kind of feedback. I think once we determine that, you know, we want somebody who's going to be notable from the community, they have to have a high level of trust and engagement in the community that we're, that we're trying to serve. It doesn't mean they're necessarily a quote unquote celebrity. They're just somebody with a lot of credibility and trust. In a lot of cases that happens to be famous people. But brands can be built around a personification of the customer you're serving. I think that's a really good way to show people, hey, this is what we're building. This is who it's for. It's great when it's somebody they know, love, and trust. But I think where they where they really shine are a couple of things. One is retail. So we talked about that. Like just the attention you get at the time, at least. It's definitely changing. And we'll probably talk about that. It's getting a lot more saturated. But just getting the attention of retailers. This is a serious brand with a serious founder. 
ultimately having a serious experienced founder is important to people. Um, second thing is press, clearly. A lot of earned media still. I mean, if you look at John Legend's brand that we just launched, he's getting so much earned media because it's a great story. It's an authentic product collection that makes sense with who he is and why he did it. He can express that story well, and he's utilizing all of the opportunities that he has to talk about it. And that that's very invaluable. You cannot get that as just kind of a, a non-well-known founder. That is impossible. So that's great. And the last thing is on funding. Um, I think that people still like it. There is some star power and some cachet in having somebody who's notable as a founder, just like you would if you were an experienced founder. It's easier to raise money if people know who you are. And so you're essentially just stacking the deck with somebody who's famous or well-known or credible. Um, and I think that that it's not just it's not really about the digital marketing channel, which is where I think people get fixated because that's like that doesn't really make that much of a difference. It's helpful, but not really. Yeah, no, I think the earned media is something that I keep hearing from people and they keep talking about. Usually, sometimes they have, you know, a well-known co-founder or a well-known spokesperson, but often it's just a serendipitous thing that someone, you know, someone who is influential liked the product. And even if it wasn't online, that piece of earned media that it was in a magazine paid dividends in a way that they never saw possible. Yeah, agreed. A morning show. I mean, let's let's talk about the... (laughs) It's amazing how much exposure, and you see it directly. As soon as as soon as that show airs, the spike in sales is it's. I mean, it's obvious, and it's usually off the charts because it's so much exposure in a concentrated period of time. And those are things that you know. If I'm just a founder working out of my garage, which is great, like nothing against people who bootstrap and and hustle and and grind. That's great. But if you're talking about venture backed company, like with a you know with a big market opportunity, you need to scale quickly. It just gets you from, you know, we'll call it zero to not zero to 100, but it gets you to zero from zero to 70 pretty quickly. And that's a big advantage. So, you know, most companies, even if they're great ideas, like great ideas are cheap. It's about execution. And if you can get essentially off the runway, it's it's very hard for brands to take off. The fact that you can get in the air, that's a big advantage. So um, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, it's it's maybe under under discussed, but it is very helpful. Um, but it's not your marketing. It's not your marketing strategy. It's just a piece of. Yeah, I want it. So, are you going to the retailers themselves with these names? Like you said, we were just a piece of paper. Was that piece of paper Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade, uh, or was it the product itself? It was a combination of here's here's what our concept is. Here's who we want to do it with. Here are some options. I think we actually like to leave a little bit of opening so that if we're working with the retail partner. You know, the partner that Ulta wants versus who Walmart wants might be different. And I think we also have to be smart about who we're picking to get into business with. So we like to have a range of a few options of people we know who are, we'll triangulate. Like, that's the key for us. We'll understand from the talent agencies who are some of the people that are really interested in this space, who will understand a model like ours, you know, that are interested in building equity versus just getting paid because we don't pay people. We give them equity. And then also from a retailer's perspective, like, does this person resonate with your audience? Do you want to work with them? Um, those things are, those bits of information are important because you, you're you basically taking a huge set of information and you're just kind of fine-tuning, fine-tuning, fine-tuning until you get to the final answer. And you have to take information. This is what I learned as a merchant. You know, there's a gut piece of it, but there, you have to get feedback. You have to get tangible information. And part of that involves going out and having conversations aside from doing, you know, analytical research and interviewing a thousand people, which we do, we need to have that kind of anecdotal feedback as well. And the retailers are great about that. Got it. You you mentioned this, but I want to go deeper. So you, 
you said that there's the equity part. You don't pay these partners. What does celebrity co-founder mean? Because I feel like it's lost a lot of meaning these days. So like how yeah. much interaction do they have? What like, do, how do you make sure that they're, they're really in it or, the, or, the, or even that they're not in it? How, how do you think about that entire interaction? Yeah, for us, and it's, you know, this is just our model. We feel, look, we stand for equity first and foremost. So we feel it's very important that the partner is a partner. So we go 50-50 with them. We set up a new company and we are 50-50 partners. But there's no guarantees. There's no upfronts. It is all about building equity. And we try to explain, if you don't get that, it's actually somewhat of a self-selecting mechanism. Like if you're not interested in working and building something, then you're not the right partner for us. There might be other opportunities that are good for you and you should go and look at those. But we do have that conversation with them. Um, and it, it, it does kind of weed out a lot of folks for us. I think what we want is somebody who's going to be very involved and a lot, you know, it's interesting because I don't want to come across as saying like, you know, our talent didn't have the idea that, you know, that it all came from us because the serendipity happens when the talent's already thinking of this and need, and sees this problem too. And that's like the Wades, for example, like the Wades already had this problem in mind. They were dealing with it firsthand. They had a daughter that was a couple years old at the time and, they were dealing with exactly the same thing, trying to solve this problem. We came at them and said, here's what we want to solve. They said, yeah, we do too. And they were a perfect family for us to work with because they are partners. They are passionate about the subject. They they want to make this change. They want to work for it. And they're amazing. Um, we've talked to folks in the past who are like, you know, they're basically like, can you build something around me? And we say, no, no matter how big you are. I don't want to, I don't need to solve one rich celebrity's problem. I need to solve millions of people's problems. And I, you know, great brands aren't built because so-and-so is famous and they have a lot of Instagram followers and they're like, I really want to do a high-end fashion brand. It's like, does the world need that? Why, what problem are you solving for people <laughs> other than you? Yeah. So let's just for, so the listeners know, like the three brands you have, you have Proudly, which is with the Wades. Is it Loved One with, um, with John Legend, right? And then... Kinlo uh, with Naomi Osaka, right? Kinlo with Naomi Osaka, exactly. Are these just that you found product needs? You know, two of the three are more in the skincare beauty side. Is that where you're leaning towards or sort of how are you thinking about what what types of areas you're going to go into? Yeah, I think we it's starting with problems first. So with the baby company, it was really looking at what is the problem for a kid zero to five, you know, if you have a parent of color and have more melanin in your skin and you know, if you do the research, it's really and you and you've had kids. Uh, it's it's very clear that there's a, a big interaction of products and things generally with skin, right? Because it's your skin is incredibly sensitive at that age. There are diapers and and clothes and things that have interactions. Um, your crate, even your cradle. Um, it, there's just a lot. There's a lot of things that can impact your skin. And we thought that focusing on skincare made the most sense after doing a lot of research. I think. With the other products, we were thinking about what infrastructure do we have that we can still share? Um, and that was clear. Like, you know, we had a skincare infrastructure already set up for the baby brand and being able to utilize that for sun care. We had all of that in place. And it was a similar problem where you've got, you know, roughly 40 percent of the population that is not being addressed through an industry that's a 13 billion dollar a year industry that's really made for one type of skin, essentially. And so there's a market opportunity. When we thought about with John you know, what, what his brand became, we, again, infrastructure was in place. It's a health and wellness focus for us, but it was a specifically kind of different end use, different product that we needed to, to service. And we got a lot of feedback from retailers looking for this product specifically for more diverse customers. We learned along the way, a couple things around, 
you know, pH with uh, more melanin in your skin, pH tends to be higher. You have to balance it differently. And if you've got 40 to 50, even up to 55% of the population that has a different pH level or a specific pH level, like solving that is a problem that can, that, that you need to solve. And it's a business opportunity. But for me in the future, when I think about this, we are looking at where are people left behind because they're not general audience. And that can be in a, in a number of different categories. I think we're going to focus on health and wellness as in what we call in-house brands. So brands that we develop and operate in-house. That's where our infrastructure and supply chain is. But we're also starting to work with JV partners. So there are operators that are hiring us to build brands with them that they operate because they have the supply chain or the retail distribution channel. So we have a different, a couple of different ways that we approach building brands in the future. I think these themes exist in a lot of different categories, basically every category. And given that we have a kind of, I would say, a special skill set in developing great brands that are culturally resonant and culturally appropriate and being able to put talent in when talent's appropriate, which I don't think it will be in every single case, that's something we're increasingly being asked to do as partners. Got it. Um, I want to talk about distribution and retail. It sounds like retail is sort of the first step or one of the very first steps that you make sure. Is that always going to be the case? Or do you need target to sign off in order for this to be a brand that that is really resonating? Or would, would there be other cases? I'd say for now, yes. I, I, I think I'm also an investor in all of the companies that I build. And I think I'm looking for all of the things that are going to help me get enough proof points that there's a market for a brand first. And second, that I have some built in revenue day one. And doing it on your own trying to I mean, I learned this in retail, like, and in a different way, but like the fact that you're just kind of going to like open a door and hope people show up, that's really hard, especially today. And you're talking about doing a website, you know, amongst millions that are out there and millions that are launching every year. It's just not a business that I feel like it's great. You know, God bless people that can do it and it can happen, but it's increasingly hard and I don't want to be in that business. So whether it's, you know, a thousand stores every time that that I think is up for discussion, because as of now, we've only launched and we have a nationwide distribution deal. So minimum as of now, like the smallest distribution we've launched to Brandon is 1700 doors. So, yeah, we've we've had, you know, we've had big distribution. And I think that's been something that's been unique for us. It does set high expectations, but it also sets your revenue immediately at a very high watermark. So that right now is our formula. We're really focused on nationwide distribution as part of a launch strategy in every brand we do. And you mentioned this earlier, or you sort of touched on it. I wanted to go deeper because you mentioned uh, saturation being an increasing issue. I believe big box saturation is a really big issue because it seems like that there a lot of big box or you know national players are increasingly see- seeking out in- less incumbent and more n- you know new faces. And so how are you thinking about this? Is that just a question of branding or is this going to be a new problem that more brands are going to have to deal with? Yeah, I think the big box retailers obviously see that there's an opportunity to service their customers more um, uniquely from each other. I think that they are, it's nothing new for them to have a desire for proprietary brands. I think that it's just that they're doing that instead of going after Tide right now, which they still do, uh, they're also going after niche, what they would call indie brands. I think the thing that we're seeing, there was a obviously a very successful run from Target in the 90s, maybe the 2000s. Um, with Go International and how they were able to partner and, and kind of create the what was what known in the industry as the Target model. <laughs> and we know a lot of those folks uh, who worked on that and they're they're great. They're great people. I think that a lot of the other big box retailers are trying to replicate that now. And it's, you know, it's a couple decades later. So it's interesting that it's taken that long. I think this skill set, I mean, I'll, I'll be really candid here. I think in a lot of cases, those retailers lack the ability 
not the desire, but they lack the ability to support small brands. Mm-hmm. And they kind of put your uh, small brand into the machine of every, no matter what size you are, it's kind of the same setup. Um, they don't customize it enough and they don't really support, I think, to the level that they need to. So I think you're going to see probably a lot of brands try to do it, a lot of new brands, indie brands. And there's going to be a lot of fallout because you have to have a lot of capital on the balance sheet to kind of weather the ups and downs, which are inevitable when you're in a retailer. And if you go into a thousand doors, it may be that like 600 of them are really tracking, which is great. But you still have to deal with the markdowns of those 400 doors or the rebalancing of inventory. And it's an expensive proposition. So I think my advice to smaller brands looking to get into retail is go slow, like build your store distribution um, because it can be really expensive if it doesn't work perfectly. And I'm saying perfectly and inevitably it won't. So it's a, it's definitely a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough place to battle, but if it works, I mean, it's huge. Got it. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk just more macro about the state of celebrity influencer, key opinion leader founded brands. Uh, when, you know, when you first started it, was a thing, but I would say it was less ubiquitous of a thing. And I think this year and last year specifically, you're seeing a real run for, you know, especially online people trying to get into the business of selling their own products. But I feel like more celebrities themselves are positioning themselves as co-founders or even like chief creative officers. Like you're seeing all these really interesting things. So what do you, what do you think is driving this? Is this is this making things more competitive for you or are you seeing more brands come to you saying, how do, how do I do this? I'm like what, what's going on here? Yeah. It's, uh, I think every industry always works in a herd and <laughs> trends are trends for a reason. Like it's, you know, when somebody explained to me how traffic on a freeway was the logic behind fr- traffic, like how like cars just naturally kind of eventually come together into packs. Like that's what we see in industries too. And something worked and, you know, everybody rushed to it. I, I I don't think it's a new formula. I think we've been doing this for a long time. Um, it's possible we've made more celebrities in the past than we've used them. So I'll go back to Ralph Lauren or Calvin Klein, or, you know, Donna Karen. We've been building brands around people for a long time. I think what, what I've seen is that there were a couple of trends that were important. One was during COVID, a lot of celebrities were not working. Like, I mean, let's, let's just be honest. Like a lot of them were waiting for their paychecks because they couldn't either play their sport or they couldn't tour or they weren't filming. And they saw Ryan Reynolds make $600 million on a sale of his brand in 18 months. And they said, Oh, I can do that. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, <laughs> not to be critical of celebrities and not to group together, <laughs> but they tend to have a lot of people around them that tell them they can do whatever they want. And so I think we just saw a deluge of, of talent kind of saying like, I, where's mine? I want to do this too. And it was good in a way because it opened up people's kind of brains to thinking about being an equity partner and owning a company, which I think is a good thing. But it also made kind of everybody look into it and everybody be interested in it. And I will give you know credit to a lot of the talent agencies, not all of them, but a lot of them are really good about being like, hey, you know, this person is really well suited for the model of equity, like they get it, they want to build something. And I think what I would say, if I'm if I'm getting into a conversation with new talent, in a lot of cases, what you want is somebody who's established and already kind of successful and has a steady revenue stream, and is ready to diversify their portfolio. And I and I say that because their short term endorsement deals are, you know, essentially their stocks and their cash assets. And when they do something with us, it's like a mutual fund, it's a long term, it's a 401k, it's Hopefully they're going to make, you know, nine figures on a sale of a business with us, 
but it's going to take three to five years, maybe seven years, and they have to be patient and they have to put in the work. But that's okay because they've got a steady revenue stream from their day job, from their short-term investments, you know, their endorsements, their licensing deals, et cetera, and they're comfortable with the diversified portfolio and they can put time into it. So I, I, I think that we're still... You know, we're still kind of right-sizing. I think there's a lot of, there's too much interest for the demand right now. But I think, you know, again, zigging when everybody's zagging, we got to think about how we're doing things differently next. And I would say I've heard from consistently from a lot of quote-unquote celebrity brand builders, they're all thinking about whether or not they want to use celebrities in every brand going forward. And I think the answer is probably not. Yeah. I, I wanted to, we're, we're kind of almost running out of time, but I have a few more questions. And one is more operational and that I try to ask uh everyone who's in the position you are where you're sort of part of a bigger portfolio and you're trying to grow these brands for, you know, bigger things down the line. How much of it for each brand is turnkey and the same throughout, or do they all have their own paths? Do you have like a a rubric of things that they all have to accomplish in, you know, different stores, but the same scale of stores, et cetera? And also, how do you share resources? Does each brand have their own set of staff or is it everyone at A-Frame working on the same things? Yeah. We, so we built the we built the company to look a lot like the companies that we think are going to buy our brands. And importantly, we are not trying to build brands at IPO. We think, I think my experience is people have stars in their eyes about how successful they can be. And they overestimate what success looks like. I think there are so many brands that have been so good and then they just overstay their welcome. They don't exit or they don't, you know, they don't evolve. And it's really hard to be a team that's focused on early stage business and be good at scaling. Those are two different skill sets and two different infrastructures. And I would much rather have a L'Oreal or a PNG or a SE Johnson acquire our brands when they're big enough for them that they can actually work with them and take them to the next level because I don't have the infrastructure or the expertise that they do on that front. But they also don't do what I do and what we do, which is we we build great concepts and they will admit that. And I think that's a great situation, but we also have to build our company in a way that's going to be complementary to the buyers. So we have about a dozen people who are shared services and they focus on mostly back office. Um, so it's HR, it's finance and accounting. Supply chain is an important one that we share and production. Um, so those things are very much templatized. And I would say the earlier stages of the brands look a lot alike. They'll have you know shared services team with one person who's a GM. And then as they get closer to market, they'll hire a few people, mostly consumer facing. It's usually pr- product development and um, e-commerce and marketing and brand. Those are kind of the, the functions that tend to live in the, in the brands as dedicated people. Once they get into market, I think they all need to grow in different directions. And I think that's where we have to be a lot more flexible. But we'll say the first you know, 18 months, they look very similar. And they're all sharing notes too. All of the brand GMs and presidents, like they're all friends. They all work together closely and make sure that they learn from each other. So the third brand that we just launched had a lot of learnings from the first two. Um, and that was great for their benefit. So we do try to share resources. We do try to try to leverage where we can. And, you know, we're learning as we go, of course. But at a certain point, every brand kind of needs to stretch, uh, spread its wings and do its own thing. And I think we have to just be careful that we understand when those moments happen. Do you have, this is a weird question, but do you like have a maximum revenue threshold you want so that you don't get into a hairy situation? Yeah, I think it would be tough for us to run a brand that's over 100 million in sales. I think that's, you know, that's probably somewhere around that is where we we get into a place where it just gets too big and too complex. It would require way too many retail partners and moving parts for a small team. It's not to say, I'm, you know, we're not quite there yet, but if we get there, we'll we'll read the tea leaves at that moment. But that's my gut. 
Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Well, uh, my last question for you is just about this year and maybe the next year, 2024. You have three brands now. Is the focus on growing them? It sounds like you have some other ideas, maybe non-celebrity ones in in the pipeline. What, what do you? What are the top three things you want to accomplish in the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, number one is to continue to build the brands we have because they are all great brands and they all have a great market opportunity. So we're focused. This is phase two, as we talked about. This is the the balance sheet years. So really focusing in on operational excellence um, there and fine tuning because you don't do everything perfect ever. And you know, your launch year, you, you learn a lot. So we're just after launch and all of those brands. Uh, number two is to keep evolving. So yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking about new brands under various different models, whether that's brands we build in-house or brands we do through partnerships with other operators. But this these problems exist everywhere in every industry and we need to be there to help create the brands that are going to solve those problems. And the third goal, which goes hand in hand with that, is we need to continue. So our team, we haven't talked about much, but our team is 97% from historically underrepresented communities. We're very much um, in, in favor of making sure that our team reflects the communities we serve. We need to spread that gospel throughout all the industries we work with. We need to start really proselytizing to say, having a diverse team is not just easy and not just doable it's smart business. If you don't have a team that reflects the population you're serving, you are missing a connection point between your company strategy and the people that you're trying to deliver products or services to. And so I think what we have to do is continue to show that you can you can build a diverse team and that a diverse team is a benefit. And we will continue to shout about that as much as we can. But that's something I really want to increasingly focus on. And I'll give credit to Avanta Rachi, who is our COO, who's been amazing and is a transformational figure in uh, the areas of DEI. And I just can't even say enough about what she's been able to do to build an amazing team and amazing culture. And um, I hope that's something that we get known for. I, you know, if our brands are successful, that's great. I'm sure they will be. But I want to be the company that changed the game and how you operate and how you build a team. And that's something that would be the most important thing to me if I was able to accomplish. Awesome. Well, Ari, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.